Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the You Can Do It Too podcast by Mamba Inspire. I am Mamadou Balde. I'm your host. The purpose of this podcast is to both showcase black excellence and increase awareness of the multitude of career possibilities out there for up-and-coming black professionals. This podcast will assist in breaking stigmas, barriers, and helping black students believe that they are smart enough to be future doctors, engineers, educators, and entrepreneurs. We have a very special guest, Elijah White, ex-vice president of ExxonMobil Upstream Research Company. Again, thank you so much for giving me your time. Uh, it's my pleasure. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, let's jump right into it. First okay. of all, could you give us a little bit of uh, introduction? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad to. So, my name is Elijah White Jr. It's interesting that many people ask, where does Jr. come from? <laughs> Obviously, my father was Elijah White Sr. So, yes, simple as that. I grew up in a very small town in a place called Wilson, North Carolina. Yes, sir. I think at the time, the population was probably about 35,000. It's probably not much bigger than that right now. Uh, a great place to grow up, though. Uh, the Most of the p- people that lived there worked in the tobacco industry because tobacco was king. Tell everybody it was interesting. We had a couple of radio stations, you know, WVOT, Wilson Voice of Tobacco Land, or WGTM, World's Greatest Tobacco Market. So it tells you something about what they did for a living in Wilson, <laughs> yeah. and which is one of the reasons I went to college. I wanted nothing to do with tobacco. <laughs> uh, if you've ever worked in that industry, I mean, it's a great industry. And obviously, it's been great for not only for Wilson, but the state of North Carolina, not just something I wanted to do. Uh, I had a love for rocks. I, I ended up going to college because I wanted to play football. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, my desires uh, were not uh, were not matched by my skills, if you will, <laughs> yeah. and so that didn't work out. But the thing it did give me a chance to do was study something I love, which was geology or the study of rocks. And I got a bachelor's degree from Elizabeth City State University in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and then followed that with a master's degree at the University of North Carolina. Um, I was one of six kids. Uh, raised mostly by a single mother and, and a grandmother in my very young age, and they are probably the two biggest uh, influential people in my life. Uh, my grandmother's no longer with us. She died when I was 13 years old, but uh, just an absolutely phenomenal woman. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. What was, uh, in 1970s, right, that's where you grew up? Yes. What was it like life for, for a young black man in, in America, specifically <laughs> where you grew up? <laughs> You know, it, it was interesting. I mean, I've uh, obviously, you know, growing up in the South, you know, you always talk about the the racial divide, if you will. Mm-hmm. I learned many things growing up that uh, geography does not dictate where there's issues with, with race or anything else because, you know, you kind of experience that any place that you go. Uh, it was a big issue. One, it was interesting, though, is as many of the racial issues that we had growing up, mm-hmm. the one thing that seemed to, if you will, uh, alleviate that was sports. Wow. Uh, there were pictures in the paper come, growing up when we were in a very tight football game and they captured a picture with me holding hands with two white guys standing on the sidelines. We didn't care anything about other than trying to win that football game and it really brought us together. And what we found we started doing is we started attending their parties, they started attending our parties and it, no, it was no longer black or white, it was we were teammates, we were family. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was interesting. I'm not sure that transcended the rest of the, you know, of the, of the community, if you will, but from a sports standpoint, I think it really made a big difference of helping me see that there were better things for me out there and I would not be restricted by race. I'm not saying it was not, there were not challenges coming up because there were challenges and there's yes, still sir. challenges today. I mean, we see it every day, but I think there are opportunities out there that we have to take advantage of. Uh, it's often been said that we have to work twice as hard just to stay even. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I won't even go into that argument today, but we do have to work hard, and there, there's no doubt about that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You grew up in a two-parent home, right? No, I grew no. up in a one-parent home. One-parent home. Yes. Uh, was uh, education an expectation for you or a privilege? Uh, it was an expectation, uh, particularly, you know, uh, up through high school anyway. Uh, unfortunately, I was the only one of my siblings to attend college. And, and I would say that if it wasn't for sports, again, I wanted to play football. I'm not sure I would have went to college. In fact, I remember having a conversation with my mother about I wasn't sure I wanted to go to college. Mm -hmm. And I remember her sitting me down and looking at me and said, well, why don't you go and try it? If you don't like it, you can always quit. You'd have to know my mother. My mother knows one thing about me is I never quit anything. If I start something, I'm going to finish it. So mm -hmm. she tricked me into going to college. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm glad she did, too. Um, and even when football didn't work out, I found my passion. And, and even at one point, I was invited to come back and play football again. I had no desire to do that because I found out when I didn't have to go to practice, I absolutely loved college. Mm -hmm. I loved everything about it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you left home and went to college. Yes. How what, what did it cost you to, to leave the community that, that you grew up in to, yeah. to go to college during that time? Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a different area, if you will. Uh, there were a lot of programs around in terms of affirmative action where they were really trying to diversify a lot of schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and so getting financial support, if you did not have the ability to pay for it, it was uh, something that was available to most people. Didn't know a lot about that. In fact, I remember the first when I first showed up at college, sitting in front of the uh, the controller's office for two days, just trying to get an audience with him to see if I can get some support to start school because my financial aid had not arrived yet. And uh, I remember this person was not the nicest person in the world, but they finally told me, "Bring me five hundred dollars, and if you do, then I'll let you into my school." Is what he said. Wow. Uh, so I called my mom. My mom had to borrow five hundred dollars to get me into college. And my financial aid did, you know, arrive later, and so things, you know, kind of took care of themselves. And even when I went to graduate school, I was, I was actually there was some assistantship there as well. So I really didn't have to pay for graduate school. Wow. Uh, so there were great opportunities, and those opportunities are still there. They're probably not as easy to find as they were before because they were really trying to get a lot more diverse in universities. And most universities you go to now, you will see a lot of diversity. Although I think when you look at that diversity. You know, there are people from all over the world and they count that. But if you start looking at strictly people who are African-Americans born in certain places, you may find the lack of diversity is still there. Wow, that's amazing. So you went to Elizabeth City uh, for, uh, for your undergraduate, which My undergraduate is a, degree in which, geology. Yes, sir, which yeah. is an SBCU. Yes. So you, from there you went to University of North Carolina yes. for your uh, master's degree. Yes. What was that transition like? <laughs> uh, you know, the transition was probably made just a little bit smoother because there was one of my buddies, uh, a fellow by the name of Ron Parker, who was at Elizabeth City with me, and we both went to University of North Carolina and sort of started together there. And so that made it a little easier because I knew somebody going in. But I think the big difference there was if you looked at the faculty, my principal uh, advisor was a fellow by the name of John Dennison, who's passed away uh, a few years ago. Uh, basically became a father for me on campus. And, and the geoscience community is a very, very small community. And the friends that I made then are still my friends today. Wow. And I think we became a family within geology. If you ask me about the rest of the University of North Carolina, I probably couldn't tell you very much. In mm -hmm. fact, I'm almost embarrassed to say that I, I have a daughter, not embarrassed about my daughter, <laughs> but I have a daughter who just graduated from the University of North Carolina a couple wow. of months ago with her master's degree in geology. And while she was there, there was a lot of issues going on with some of the Confederate statues. There was a thing, Silent Sam. I was in school at the University of North Carolina for three years. 
never knew about Solid Sam because I didn't stray very far from the geology department and it was way on the other side of the campus. So from a geology standpoint, from the close-knit family that we had, it was a very easy transition. I'm not sure what would have happened had I been thrown into the bigger throes of the university as an undergraduate. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you graduated in 1984. Yes. And you started working at, Ex at Exxon. Yes. That, that's an interesting story too. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know, as kids coming up, we have these grand ideas. And my first idea was when I graduate from college, I was going to take a couple months off and I was going to travel the country. Mm -hmm. And um, when that time came, I realized it actually takes money to travel the country, <laughs> and I had none. Yes, and sir. I was supposed to start. I graduated in uh, in May. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to start work for Exxon in uh, in August. And I called Exxon up about you know the first week I'd been out of school and says. Can I come now? <laughs> and so as opposed to, you know, waiting until August, I ended up starting work on June the 8th yes, in 1984. Sir. Yes, sir. How hard was it to get that job? Uh, you know, it was, um, it was made a lot easier because I had summer internships. I did three summer internships with Exxon uh, before, before I graduated. Okay. I also had um, uh, summer internships, one with Woods Hole's Oceanographic Institute and also Mammoth Cave National Park. So okay. five total internships during my undergraduate and graduate wow. degree. And I think that looks very good on the resume. Mm -hmm. uh, the interesting story about Exxon is by the time that I was ready to graduate, they were no longer recruiting at the University of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. But there were other companies that were. Uh, the companies were Mobile, the companies were Arco, uh, Shell, Dowell, a few others. And I actually had job offers from three other companies, from, from Mobile, who's obviously part of the yeah, ExxonMobil yeah. family now, from Arco, who was bought out by BP and no longer exists, if you will, yes, on yeah. a standalone basis, and then Dowell, which I think is a subsidiary Summerjay now. Don't quote me on that, but <laughs> they, were, they were, I think, sold off from, from Dow Chemicals at the time, yes, uh, made me offers. And somebody from Arco called Exxon to verify my summer employment, and then Exxon called and says, well, wait, when are you coming to interview with me? So you didn't ask. So I, I went down and basically told them, make me an offer and I'll take it. I shouldn't have been so easy because they made me the lowest offer. Yes, <laughs> I still sir. took it. <laughs> yes, sir. So, and it was because of the people, the people that I met during my summer internships. Yes, sir. The first time we met was at uh, FLA. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I walked in that room and I saw you, I was like, wow. Yeah. Like, I want to be this guy on there. And <laughs> I, I, I admired you. And one thing that I really, out of all the questions that interest me, one thing that uh, interest, I asked you this question, I was like, you started uh, at Exxon as a geologist, mm -hmm. and uh, when I met you, you were vice president of the upstream research company. Yeah. How hard was it to go, cl to climb that mountain? Uh, what some challenges you faced? <laughs> you know, it's interesting that um, many times when you climb a mountain and when you get to the top, all you can think about is the fact that you're here yeah. and you're, you, you forget about the times that you slipped, that you had a misstep here, misstep there. Uh, there were many missteps along the way. Mm -hmm. but, but as somebody asked me a question once, did I feel like as an African-American in such a large company, if I underwent more scrutiny than quote unquote the average person? And I said, absolutely, I did. And there was no doubt about that. I mean, and one of the ways you know is I could walk down the hall Everybody knew my name when I started, and I was, at least at that time, uh, within the upstream research company where I started my career, I was the only African-American geologist at the time. 
And um, it was interesting that everybody knew me. I didn't know everybody else. And I tell them people were screwing. Everybody was watching everything I did. But the good news is they saw the good as well as the, the need for improvement, if you mm -hmm. will. And I think the fact that they were watching so hard allowed them to see some of the strengths that I had. And it also allowed them to see if I had any weaknesses to be there early on to help me overcome those weaknesses. And the good news is that was really their agenda. It was to help me to succeed. Uh, I could have been in an environment where it could have been the exact opposite, but fortunately I was not. So when I look at my success, it's not so much the people who promoted me, you mm -hmm. know, 30 years later, but the people who really helped me stay in the game, if you will, in my early days. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's yeah. one of the lessons I, I remember yeah. you get always telling us uh, yeah. whenever we get around you. Uh, what You started at the company mm -hmm. with a... Uh, as a minority, yes. basically, and uh, I finished as a minority. As a minority, like, <laughs> I don't yes, know if that's good or bad, but and, it's a fact, right? <laughs> I, I'm saying you have so. You, I'm sure you have faced some imposter syndrome. Yeah. You faced intimidation. What yeah. were one key that helped you annihilate those little things yeah. that you feel? I, I think it was me having confidence in who I was and also having a goal in mind. And my goals were not positional goals. I tell people all the time is, you can go into any endeavor and you can aspire to be the best that you can be. But the only thing that you can control is to be the best that you can be. Yes, sir. And whether it be an geologist or engineer or you name it, I can be the best person I can be by continuing to work hard, to learn, always have an open mind when it comes to learning and never feel like that I can't learn from anybody, even new hires coming in. Uh, you may not be aware, but Exxon has a, a program and I won't remember the name of it, but it's basically a, a generational deal. So they will take somebody who is a senior executive like myself and pair me up with a relatively new hire. And so I would talk to this new hire about the business and mm -hmm. help them understand that aspect of it. What they would help me with is electronics, you know, how to set my phone to certain things to be able to airdrop messages or take videos or whatever. So they were really helping me understand today's technology, if you mm -hmm. will. And it was absolutely great. Yes, uh, I won't mention his last name, but Eric is the, is the young man who, uh, who was the person they paired me up with. And we didn't have very long together because it was a program that started right about then in my career. But to me, it was very useful to me and hopefully it was very useful to him as well. Wow. One of th that confidence that you talked about, is, is it connected to what you learned at home from your mom? Uh, you know, I, I think it's a, a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, I will, uh, I'll deviate a little bit and talk about my four kids mm -hmm. uh, who were all athletes. In fact, our three daughters were athletes all, all through college. And one of the things I told them is that they will participate in sports. I won't dictate what sport they play, but they will play a sport. Uh, and if they play a game, let's say they play basketball and they don't like it, they don't ever have to play basketball again, but they have to pick something else. And the reason for that is because I think sports does a lot of different things. I think it, it creates, uh, first of all, it helps with your personal fitness, if you will. Uh, I think it helps you to, to understand and develop the ability to work in a team. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it helps you to build confidence, if you will, to be able to go out and achieve things and see what your role is. And I think it also helps build leadership quality. So I think it was important to do that. I think that helped me a lot in terms of building my confidence. But obviously, you know, I had a very, very strong mother in our house who also helped to build that confidence, who helped us to believe that we could accomplish anything. Uh, interesting enough, uh, one of my, my daughter who just got a degree in geology, uh, just got wow. married a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And we, uh, she and I dance. I'm not a very good dancer. In fact, my wife tell you I don't dance at all. Uh, but I danced with her to two songs at her choosing. 
and uh, I was a little nervous about this the song choice because it was R. Kelly. You know, we all know the R. Kelly story to these days. Yes, but there were two songs. The first one that we danced to was I Am the Greatest, or The World's Greatest, which mm -hmm. was a soundtrack from the, the Ali movie. Mm -hmm. And the second one was Step in the Name of Love. And she told a story on Facebook about the reason she picked those two songs. And she said before every soccer game that she ever played, I would play that song, I Am the Greatest, all the way to the game to convince her she was going to be the greatest out there. Wow. I didn't even remember that. I remember that was our song, but I didn't remember the whole rationale behind it. Wow. But she did. And then Step in the Name of Love, when she was a little girl, we used to dance around to that song with her standing on my feet. And those are just memories that we had. But wow. those are the types of things that you know we want to instill in our children. My mother did that to me. And sometimes we remember later on those things that they did, even the hey, why don't you go to college if you don't like it, you can quit. Again, she knew me enough to know how to convince me to take the right path. But wow. once you somebody sets you on that path, now you got to take it and run with the ball. And that's what I did, and that's what I hope my kids are doing today. Yes, sir. What questions did you ask me again? I just started talking. No, that was great. That was, that was a great answer. That was yeah. a great answer. Many people say that uh, this industry is something worth to be part of. It's a yeah. great industry to be part of. What do you think makes this industry a great thing to be part of? You know, I, I tell people that when you start looking for uh, career choices, you know, you, you have to have a passion about what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. But it's also wise to do something that people are going to need. And, and there's the jokes that people always are going to need doctors, if you will, because people always get sick and that they're always going to need somebody at the funeral home because people are always going to die. I would argue you can throw the tax man in there too because <laughs> you have to pay taxes. But when you start thinking about the, building, the industry that we're in, in terms of the in energy industry, and I know you've had the conversations before about so many people who don't understand what our business is all about. But it's simple things like, you know, you turn on a light switch and the lights come on and people don't understand what's behind that and it's our industry is what's behind that. Yes, you know, I tell people all the time is that you look at the bottom of your shoes and most people have rubber on the bottom of their shoes and they do come from a plant, but it's not a plant that grows in the backyard. It's, yes, it's from a chemical plant. Yes, uh, and so if you look at the things that we do, that we basically enable people to live and to better their lives. Yes, uh, and I know there's a lot, a lot of discussion about climate change and other things that we have to come up with alternative energy sources. But many people, including many of the leaders at ExxonMobil have said, it's going to take all affordable and reliable sources of energy to help us meet the, the world, the growing energy demand. Yes. But I think oil and gas is going to be a big part of that for the foreseeable future. Now it's going to be up to us to make sure that we do that in a manner that we continue to protect our environment. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. I actually I had a meeting with uh, Bruce Mars, the mm -hmm. Emory president, about three days ago. Okay. And we talked about that. Yeah. And you're right, many people who are outside this uh, industry, when they yeah. hear about Exxon or companies like that, the first thing they think about is global warming. Yeah. warming. Do you think that uh, the media is doing a bad job at showcasing who we are? <laughs> So, uh, you know, the media can't do a bad job unless we let them do a bad <laughs> job, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, headlines are important mm -hmm. to the media and, and to you and me because when we see so many things, their head, catchy headlines is what makes us pay attention. Yes, sir. And I think what they're doing is they're forcing us to look at things. So I want to be careful about whether they're doing a bad job or not. I think it is incumbent upon us to really understand what they're reporting and then to also check their facts, if you yes, will. Sir. Because, again, they have to be sensationalists in some respects. Aspects, but you would hope that the work and the reports behind that sensationalism would have some accuracy to it. Uh, I'm not sure I find that to be true all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not untrue all the time either. So I think, again, we just have to really pay attention to that. Uh, 
climate change, you know, I'm a geologist. I've studied the rock record, you know, pretty much my whole career, if you will. And the one thing that we know is the earth has cooled and it heated up several times. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've gone through several ice ages, if you will. And the only way to basically to come out of an ice age is you got to heat up the earth. Yes, and so we know this happened. So this happened many times before man was around, man and woman was around, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only question I think we need to ask ourselves, are we doing something to accelerate that? Yes, and I think most people believe that we probably are doing something to accelerate it. It's going to happen, mm -hmm. but are we accelerating it is the question. If we are, at what rate are we accelerating it? Wow. Wow. You've been in Exxon for how long now? Well, for the company gives me credit for 36 years, <laughs> 36 uh, years. because of my summer internships. Yes, but sir. from the day I walked in to the day I walked out, it was about 35 uh, from the day that I graduated with my master's. But, but yes. I'll take the 36. Yes, sir. <laughs> what were some of your best experiences working in this industry? Oh, that was an easy one. I, I mentioned that the people that I work with, obviously, you know, we work with so many smart people who are working so hard to help you succeed. And I mm -hmm. think that was something that was really surprising to me in such a competitive environment that we're in, that people are actually trying to help you succeed. Mm -hmm. That was awesome. But my best memories are, you know, you mentioned that my last job, I was the, the vice president for upstream uh, geoscience research. Mm -hmm. uh, I also had two other vice president's jobs. I was the vice president for exploration for Africa for five years. Mm -hmm. And then I was the global vice president for uh, geoscience for our production company for two years. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the Africa job, I got to meet with uh, many heads of state in Africa. Mm -hmm. And uh, her excellent Ellen Sirleaf Johnson, yes, uh, Ellen Johnson Surly, if I get it right, one day, <laughs> yes, who was the uh, president of Liberia at the time. I met with her probably three times, and that was probably one of my greatest honors. Um, I met with several other presidents, uh, two separate presidents from Mozambique. Mm -hmm. uh, I met with uh, the late John Adam Mills, who was the president of Ghana at the time. Yes, uh, many uh, energy, energy ministers. And, you know, I keep thinking this little country boy from North Carolina, you know, meeting with such important people and people who look like me. I thought that was those are probably my biggest highlights. And the fact that ExxonMobil was able to do business in some of those countries and some of them because at least partly due to my efforts. I, I shouldn't say all of my efforts because I wasn't really doing the work. I was just having the conversations. We had some brilliant people that were working behind the scenes to make those happen. Wow. But those are probably the highlights. Yes, sir. Many people talk about uh, working in these industries, mm -hmm. a eight to five job where yeah. you're helping somebody <laughs> else build their empire. How yeah. did you manage to build your own empire while yeah. helping ExxonMobil build yeah. this empire? Well, first of all, I never had an empire and I still don't. <laughs> uh, you know, eight to five, I don't even know what that means. I, I do remember uh, once asking a, a, a boss early days, you know, what are the hours? Mm -hmm. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you know, is it, you know, eight to five? Is it seven to four? And he laughed. He said, you know, you're a salaried employee. And I said, yeah. He said, that means we own you 24 seven, <laughs> 24 days, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. And, and I kind of understood what he meant because, and, and it had nothing to do with anybody but me. But when I first started, I didn't really know a lot of people, particularly outside of work. And I would go to work. I'd get there at 6.30 in the morning. I would leave at 4 o'clock. Mm -hmm. I would go to the gym and work out. I would go eat dinner. And then I'd go back to work. And I would probably stay at work to 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. Not because anybody was there to see me work and I was trying to impress anybody. It was because I had a problem I was trying to solve. And I was excited to get back to it. Uh, I didn't have a TV at home. We didn't have the internet at the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we didn't. I didn't have cable TV anything. I had a TV that was about that big with a radio attached to it. And I didn't have a phone. 
Uh, we didn't have cell phones at that time either. And so going back to work, that was my place. That was my piece. And so I worked a lot more than eight hours a day, uh, but not because I was forced to, because I wanted to. Yeah. And I continued to do that until, you know, I met my, my wife and, and we started having kids. And then that changed things. So now I still worked some of the same hours, but I would work at home. In fact, I remember when I got my first computer. And, you know, I said, I'm going to go home and work. And I get home and my daughter wanted to sit in my lap. Daddy, I help you. So now I have to wait for them to go to sleep before I work. So mm -hmm. I can't even tell you how many hours I worked. I felt like I got plenty of sleep, but I had some really weird, you know, weird work patterns, if you will, too. Yes. But it was I did that to me. Nobody else was asking me to do that. Yes, and when I went back to work after hours, nobody knew I was there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Wow. That's amazing. As you may um conquered um yeah. many right now the one of the many issues is it's not right now it's been a long time yeah. but one of the many issues the idea that many young black male and female in uh, especially in inner cities they find leaders role models in uh, the media what's the media showcasing everybody yeah. want to be the next nba star and yeah. star what do you think why do you think uh what, what is the issue of that? What's the reason of that issue? What do you think? Is uh, no, I, I think it's a very simple one. I mean, uh, most people want to do well in life. Mm -hmm. And in order to do well in life, uh, it requires a couple of things. One of those is called money, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully good health and, mm -hmm. and other things. And, and I think if you look at, you know, professional athletes, they are the quote unquote, uh, what do you call it? The flag bearers, if you will, yes. for people who are doing well, particularly African-Americans who are doing well. And I think, you know, people feel like if I've got a natural ability, nobody can take that away from me. In order to become a vice president or any type of leader in a company like ExxonMobil, somebody has to decide that you are worthy and give you that opportunity, hopefully based on some abilities. But we know there are a lot of people who have those types of abilities who don't get those types of opportunities. Yes, and so when you start looking at athletes, all they have to do is use their God-given talents in the right way, and somebody's going to employ them. Mm -hmm. And I, so, so some people see that as an as a easy way, to, if you will, to riches. The problem is uh, athletes, particularly professional athletes, are unique individuals. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to believe sometimes that when you see some of the things that they can do, uh, I would say they're otherworldly, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so no matter how bad mm -hmm. I want to be a professional basketball player, I can go out and I can practice, you know, 20 hours a day, it's just not going to happen because I don't have that God-given talent. And it's not a height issue. There are people in the NBA who are probably my height or a little bit shorter or have been. It's just an ability. And so the ability that I have, the Lord gave me up here, and hopefully I've used that to the best of my ability. But the real key is how do you put yourself in a position where, first of all, people recognize your capability, mm -hmm. and then second of all, they really want to help you attain your goals and objectives. Yes, sir. And so it's a two-part street. Yes, sir. What do you think uh, professional, young professional us right now could do to help these young children realize that there are other options? Yeah, I, I think the thing that we can do is that we, we have to be role models for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, any kid who wants to be a professional basketball player, football player, lawyer, doctor, I am never going to say anything to try to squash their dreams, if you will. But you have to help them kind of see reality sometimes. And so what I always say is, okay, so that's great. What's your backup plan? In case, you know, as this great football player, you hurt yourself that you can't play your sport anymore, what's your backup plan? So having a secondary goal, if you will, knowing very well that secondary goal for most people needs to be their primary goal, but that's not my job is to squash their dreams. Because I will tell you right now, there are lots of professional athletes who have gone on to achieve things far greater than anything they ever did on a field or on a court. 
but people don't choose to, to remember that. We've had former football players who were judges. Uh, I just read about a football player the other day that was a Rhodes Scholar. He's in medical school right now. And, or I, in fact, I, I think he's finished medical school. He's probably doing his residency right now. Yes, and, and the same is true for almost every sport out there. There's just some amazing people out there. Yes, their athletic ability was just part of their amazing abilities, if you will. Yes, sir. And so to get back to your question, what do you what do, we do for these young kids? We got to be role models and we have to show them these things. We have to help them. We have to help them get out of their comfort zone because we all have comfort zones that we like to stay in. Um, if you ever watch people who are work out in a gym, uh, people who have really, really large arms. Yes, and every time you see them, they're working on their arms. But then you see their legs and not so good. <laughs> and you think instead of working on your arms all the time, maybe you should work on your, your legs so you can have a more balanced portfolio, if you will. Yes, and I think the same is true from an educational standpoint. You know, going back to my career as a geologist and people ask me what would I have done differently. I, I remember walking into a meeting where there was all engineers and I ran out as fast as I could. They, I could. Knowing what I know now, I would have stayed in that meeting. I would have learned a little bit more about engineering, understanding now how closely we work together, and mm -hmm. understanding their language would have made it so much better, yes, and vice versa. Uh, so I think we have to help kids get outside of their comfort zone and not continue to go to the things that they feel like are their strengths. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You came so far, and yeah. uh, you, you came from a hard, long journey. Yeah. What made you, what helped you wake up every day and chase your dream. Uh, uh, that's an easy one too. So <laughs> I had a goal coming out of high school and that was to make my mother proud of me. Yeah. And that was part of pushing that dream forward. What can I do to continue to make her proud of me? My joke now is that if I realized that the bar was so low, I wouldn't have worked so hard. My mother's <laughs> only wish for me was to be a good person and to, to do whatever I could to, uh, to help others. And I felt like I could do that without, you know, working as hard as I worked or doing anything else. Uh, but then once we had kids, too, I wanted to be a role model for my kids. And I wanted to provide uh, the ability to I wanted the ability to provide for them uh, a little bit better than my mom had for me. Now, I go back and look at what my mom did for us. My mom had, you know, six kids. I doubt that she ever made more than ten thousand dollars a year, but we had everything we needed. And wow. so she I did a. a absolutely wonderful job raising us. Times have changed a little bit. I'm not sure you can raise six kids on $10,000 uh, today, but, so, but my goal was to be able to do the same thing, to provide for my kids everything that they needed. Because she was able to do that for us on little to nothing. I wanted to go in above and beyond. I think, and I would hope that every parent wants their children to be better or have more opportunities than they've had. And I think that's what we've been trying to do with our kids, at least give them the opportunity to be able to pursue their dreams. Wow. That's great. So after 36 years, you decided to retire. Yep. Was that a plan of yours? Yes. Yes. Sir. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had always planned to retire at 60. Mm -hmm. uh, I retired. My first day of retirement was March 1st. I turned 60 on May the 4th, so a few months short of 60, but the discount rate dictated that that was the right thing to do from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, but, it, but it was always kind of my goal. Um, I was Let's say, when I first started, if you'd asked me, did I think I could stay with ExxonMobil for more than 30 years, I would have said, I doubt it very seriously. And, and it had nothing to do with the company itself, but I just knew that this was going to be a hard company to, to work for from a standpoint. If you look at all the smart people around you, mm -hmm. at some point they were going to realize I wasn't smart enough and kicked me out the door. <laughs> Fortunately, that never happened. And so I hadn't even really thought about you know where I would be 
when I turned 60, but the goal was always to retire at 60. And then when I got to the point that I've been with the company for more than 20 years, I knew that that was, I was not going to go work for anybody else. So it was going to be Exxon or, or nobody, if you will. And, uh, and so that really worked out. But the, the 60 thing is there are a lot of statistics out there to start looking at, you know, mortality rates, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, and it says for people who work until they're 65, they tend not to stay around to 70, if you will. And people who leave earlier tend to do a little bit better. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's any fact to that or not. And that really had nothing to do with my decision because I was already already planning to go at 60 anyway. Mm -hmm. But that really helped solidify the fact that I need to go at 60. <laughs> yes, now, if the company had asked me to stay a little while longer, I could have probably done that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would have been saying, look, let's, let, let's set some goals here. Mm -hmm. And what would be that goal? Would it be 61? Would it be 62? I never had any plans to stay around the 65. So, and I don't know if you're aware, but at least for my position, I would have had mandatory retirement at 65. Yeah. So that's the highest I could have gone. But wow. I had no, I had never had a desire to push it to 65. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, what is your day to day like nowadays? Uh, so it depends on whether you ask me or my wife. My wife will tell you I play golf every single day, which is not <laughs> quite true. I do play quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, I get up every morning, uh, and it varies anywhere between 4.30 and 5.15. Mm -hmm. uh, we have two dogs. I get up, and I let the dogs out, and then I read my Bible. And so I've had a goal to read uh, the Bible from front to back, and I've done it maybe a couple of times now. And so this time when I started, I started reading a verse from the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, the New Testament's a little shorter, so I finished that a few months ago, and I'm almost finished with the uh, the Old Testament now. And then also have a Daily Word Bible, so I read whatever the Daily Word is from that. And then after that, let the dogs back in, I feed the dogs, uh, and then after they eat, I take them for a walk in the mornings before the sun comes up. And then the rest of my day is if I've got a golf time plan, I go play golf. If not, I pay bills, I read. Uh, I still talk to quite a few people from work. There are a few people that I still mentor, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy doing that. Most of that's by phone conversation. Now, a few times we'll meet for lunch or even a few times for dinner. Um, and I'm starting to get lots of calls now about volunteer opportunities. Mm -hmm. I ask people not to bother me for six months. And so <laughs> September 1st would be that six months. So oh, wow. a few people are starting to line up about uh, some volunteer opportunities, volunteer boards and things of that nature. Wow. Again, yeah. thank you so much for yeah. letting me bother you yeah. for, for this. This is not bothering. I enjoy this. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, I would need to be careful with my terminology. Bother is a good thing. I enjoy it. Right? <laughs> no, no, it's great. Yeah. So, do you have any advice for all these young you, I would yeah. say, uh, who, who don't really believe that this life could be theirs one day? Yeah. You know, I, I think the thing is, again, uh, you really have to have, have some confidence in yourself. And that confidence starts with making sure you are prepared for whatever the task is at hand. Uh, I'll go back to my early days in Exxon. I had to do a review, and it was a review for managers and supervisors. Uh, started at 8 o'clock in the morning. I was the last person to go of the day, so I went about 5.30. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting there nervous all day. And, and I'm here to tell you, it was probably the worst presentation that you would have ever heard. Mm -hmm. I know it was the worst one I've ever given. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, people just patted me on the back, says, oh, that was good, that was good, you did a good job. And I went home that night and I didn't, I didn't sleep because I knew it was bad. In fact, I was wondering if they were gonna fire me because I thought it was so bad, even though they gave me continual praise. And so I said, that's never gonna happen again. And so six months later, I had to give another, and I, I, this time I felt really prepared. And I gave my presentation and I felt good about it. And people at the end says, oh my God, that was so much better than last time. 
And I was like, wait a minute, last time they told me it was pretty good. Mm -hmm. And so the lesson there for me was we are a pretty good judge of our own character and mm -hmm. our own performance. And we really have to follow that because if I had taken what they gave me the first time, I would have said, hey, this is easy. I don't even have to prepare for this. We wouldn't be having this conversation now. I'm sure I would have been terminated many years ago. But I knew. I know when I perform well and I know when I don't. I need to, to take advice. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll have what I call my, uh, my truth teller in the room. So let's just say you're my truth teller. And we've already made an agreement that at the end of the presentation, you're going to come and you're going to tell me the truth. And the reason you're going to tell me the truth, because that's the only way that I'm going to grow and get better, yes, is to hear truth. Um, if you ask me one of the shortfallings of, I wouldn't say, just, so, just say our company, but our society is, people are very hesitant to give people bad news. And that bad news sometimes is what you really need to hear to be able to improve. Yes. Because if nobody tells you what your shortcomings are, how do you go work on the shortcomings? We talk about the bodybuilders. If nobody tells them they have very small legs and if they're ever going to win a contest, they need to improve on their legs, mm. they're going to think they can just get by with a great upper body. Yeah. So I think that we really be, need to surround ourselves with truth tellers, first of all. And we need to be, to, to be humble. We have to realize that as there was a saying that we said in high school before every game, it said never compare yourself to others. It either makes you bitter or vain. There's always going to be somebody a little bit better off and always somebody a little bit worse off. So just you got to be comfortable in who you are and just go out and be the best that you can be and not worry about others. I mean, I could sit here and I can look at my neighbor across the pond over there who's built the bigger house. So I can go buy, build a bigger house than him. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else builds a bigger one. I can go build a bigger one than them. Eventually, I'm going to be broke. I don't know what their finances are. They can afford this, but I'm going to be broke. You know, I need to be satisfied with what I can do here. I need to be satisfied with what I can do for my family, not worry about what others are doing for theirs. Mm -hmm. And so people need to be a little realistic about their goals, their abilities, and their finances, if yes, you will. Uh, what are those things that you can do that's going to make sure that you're in it for the long haul? And so we'll use, you know, let's talk about finances again. Mm -hmm. uh, straight out of school, you're gonna go yes. buy the most expensive Mercedes that you can buy. And then you're gonna find out you have to live in it. Mm -hmm. Versus going out buying a car that you can really afford, getting a nice place that you can really afford, and then over time, building up. Yeah. Uh, I think this is the, the third house that we've lived in. And my wife is saying, if we get a fourth one, it's gonna be smaller. We bought this house because we had four kids. My father-in-law lives with us and mm -hmm. we wanna be able to pro, you know, provide for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I couldn't have done this 30 years ago, maybe not even 20 years ago. In yeah. fact, a true story, I have to remember. So Raven, my oldest daughter is 28 years old now. I was driving her to soccer practice and it may have been 15 years ago or so. And uh, we came to this neighborhood on the way to her soccer game and we stopped at one of the model homes and she go, Daddy, I love this, I love this, let's buy out here. And I said, sweetheart, we can't afford to live <laughs> out here. And, uh, and then, you know, fast forward a few years after that and when we decided to build a house out here, and I remember she looked at me, Daddy, I thought we couldn't afford this. And I said, some things have changed. And sometimes we just have to be patient and wait on those changes, but we have to prepare ourselves for those changes too, if they're gonna happen. But sometimes we gotta wait our time. There's an old saying, keeping up with the Joneses, get you in trouble. <laughs> I don't even know who the Joneses are. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's what uh, I hear people say, run your own race. Yeah, control that's right. what you can control. I love yes, that. Sir. Do you have any other, is there any other thing that you feel like the audience need to know? Yeah, I, I just think that um, 
I, I love the fact that you're doing these types of podcasts. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that you, you talked a little bit earlier about media and whether there's quote unquote misinformation. I think there's so many places that people can go and get information that's not pertinent to them because all information is not pertinent to us, if you will. And so I think this provides a, a platform, if you will, for people to be able to learn about people who look like them, if you will, and kind of how they've made it, realizing that their course and the race they're going to run is going to be very, very different. But again, setting goals is is so, so important. Um, There's a story I like to tell, and it is a fabricated story, if you will. Uh, And I was at at our uh, plant uh, in Baton Rouge, at the refinery in Baton Rouge, and I was talking to an audience there, and I was talking about goal setting. And I used the young man as an example about, you know, he set a goal. He had a goal, very simple. He wanted to make $200,000 a year. He wanted to marry a beautiful woman, have two kids, own a Mercedes in a house. I'm sorry, not a Mercedes, a BMW in a house. That's fabricated. It can be a Mercedes if you want to. (laughs) Uh, And the one thing he did not want to be, he never wanted to be plant manager. That's just not a job he wanted. And then fast forward his career, 15 years now, he's doing very well they promote somebody to a plant manager who doesn't look like him. And he's very upset now. In fact, to the point he works 15 more years, he is mad for 15 years because he didn't get the plant manager job. Finally, his wife asked him, why, why are you so mad? He said, well, they didn't make me plant manager. She reminded him he never wanted to be plant manager. You know what? He wanted to make a job, have a job, 200000 a year, beautiful wife. He better tell his wife she's beautiful. Two kids had that. <laughs> He had two BMWs, he had a beautiful house, and they had a lake house. He should have been the happiest person in the world. Oh, did I mention he was making $400,000 a year? Wow. Should have been the happiest person in the world. But he forgot his own goals, wow. and all he did was focus on what somebody else was doing over there. So what should have been very happy years for him were bitter years for him. And, and I say that because there's so many truths to that story mm-hmm. all the time because, again, somebody's looking at the Joneses. Set your own goals and try to achieve your own goals, and let's clap for those other people who are doing well on the other side of the fence, yes. and then maybe they'll clap for you when you achieve your goals as well. Yes. But without setting goals, how do you know when, you're gonna, when you should be happy? There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mamba Inspire You Can Do It Too podcast. We have another special guest next episode. Make sure you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date. Our YouTube channel, we have a Twitter and Instagram for updates. Look up Mamba Inspire. Peace.